The Dugout CEO Podcast is on the air. I'm Phil Van Horn, baseball lifer and fan of the Dugout CEO. Each week, Casey Cabell goes around the horn with baseball superstars, Hall of Fame coaches, and business leaders who've used baseball experience to win the game of life. Now batting, Casey Cabell. What's up, Dugout Nation? Today, we are joined by C.J. Stewart. Fired up to have him on the Dugout CEO podcast. C.J. is the co-founder and visionary officer at Lead Center for Youth, a nonprofit organization in Atlanta, Georgia. He is the ambassador of the Players Alliance, a team focused on building equitable systems in order to change the trajectory of diversity throughout baseball and a former professional baseball player and hitting instructor. C.J., welcome to the Dugout CEO I am so excited to be here with you, Casey. Been looking forward to it all week. Yeah, likewise. Gosh, you were one of the first people I met when I moved to Atlanta back in 2012. And whenever I do something new, I always want to know people that are super impactful in the space I'm about to venture into. And I said, all right, who are the best people in the game of baseball in the city of Atlanta? And who are good people that are doing things that really matter? And your name kind of got brought up by pretty much everybody that I talked to. And Eventually, we met and kind of developed a really cool friendship and have done some cool things in business and life together. So it's just cool to, you know, connect after a couple of years. Yeah, I remember meeting you as well. I mean, you were the, the first person that I ever met that really exemplified the what the business of baseball could be. And when people start thinking about baseball, I think we kind of look at it, you know, strictly as a thing that's just for fun and for the love of the game. But you know, it is a business. And in order to do things well, it has to be treated as such. And so, you know, before meeting you, I was really starting to, to meet a lot of good folks. You know, Pat Alacla, somebody I think about, Bill McClellan and several others that were really starting to get me to think about, you know, being more than just a baseball coach. And they were doing all this, but I just really didn't have a context around other like-minded people. So when I met you, I was saying to myself, like you are the person that they were preparing me for. And, uh, you know, I, I, I believe I was ready. And that's the reason why our, our relationship was able to grow so, so quickly. Cool. Well, I appreciate that. So let's go back to CJ as an eight year old. You're a Cubs fan. I'm a Cubs fan. I think we kind of hit it off. I remember you telling me you used to grow up watching the Cubs on WGN with your grandpa. Like, talk to me about that. How'd you become a baseball kind of fan? Yeah. And, and even as just, you know, bring that up, it just takes me to, you know, eight years old, 1984, the summer in Atlanta is hot. Mom and dad are, you know, working. So I'm over at grandmama's house, grandmama done, 1757 Beecher Street, Southwest Atlanta. And it was just my myself and my sister were there. And my grandmother would be, you know, yelling at me, telling me to go outside and play. And I would. But what would happen was is the Cubs, they would play those daytime games. And my granddad and I, we would sit in the room. He would be in, the, you know, laying in the bed or something. And I would be kind of at the foot of the bed. And they had the, the television on their dresser. And then there was an air conditioner that was just kind of always loud and roaring. Because it was so, and, you know, we listened to these Harry Perry Cubs baseball games. I probably knew more about Harry Carey than the Cubs because he was just so such a powerful voice. But 
Anyway, I got his voice. I got the excitement of the Cubs. There are black players on the team, Gary Matthews in particular. And I just remember it was just so much peace in the house around that. That was the only time nobody was yelling at me about going outside, I guess because I was quiet. And then I would leave from there and play my own baseball game in the backyard. So I put myself at Wrigley Field. I had a bunch of rocks, a stick, throw them up in the air, hit home runs, struck out a few times. And then I would throw rocks to a tree to work on my pitching. So, you know, 84 was a very special year. In addition to that, a couple other things. I remember Jesse Jackson was running for president, which for me as a young African-American boy, being born and raised in a working class family in Atlanta, you know, that was his plight, you know, as, as he was a child and he was leading in Chicago. And I just remember thinking how crazy that was that a black man was running for president. So I said, you know, if he's crazy enough to do that, let me just try to pay attention to him. But then also that was during the time as well with Adidas and Run DMC. And I remember the Adidas Forum shoes, Forum Low Shoes came out. I wanted them, couldn't get them because my mom and dad said that I couldn't, which basically probably meant that, you know, we just weren't in a position to financially afford them. But 1984, I remember Cubs baseball, Jesse Jackson, and the Adidas Forum shoe coming out. Crazy, crazy time. And I remember Gary Matthews. So it was Gary Matthews Jr. And uh, and then I guess his dad. And it was super cool to see father and sons in the big leagues and all that kind of stuff. So that's really cool. Now, tell, take us on the journey from you as a eight-year-old, I guess, baseball player throwing up rocks in your backyard and hitting with sticks to, you know, you end up playing in the Chicago Cubs organization. Talk to me about that journey as a player. So eight years old. I'm busting out windows and, you know, my family members were saying, we need to get this kid into some baseball league. And my, I guess my aunts or somebody just told my mom and dad about Cascade Youth Organization, which was located in Southwest Atlanta. At the time I was living in Northwest Atlanta. And so Southwest Atlanta was, you know, a, a, a higher level of working class people from what I could see. And North, Northwest Atlanta, where I live, was just like really strictly working class and maybe a little bit lower. So the, the city was not only segregated by race, but it was also segregated by class within the African-American community. Well, my grandmother lived in Southwest Atlanta and, and fortunately Cascade Youth Organization wasn't that far away. And so I go over there and I got a chance to play baseball for the Cascade Youth Organization or CYO Braves. And my three coaches were Emmett Johnson Sr., who was the chairman of the Atlanta Public Schools Board of Education, Joshua Butler Sr., who was a well-known art teacher at Benjamin Elijah Mays High School, and then Gus Burns. I never knew what Coach Burns did for a living, but let's just say he was a full-time coach because he was always there. But me being on that team was so important because most of the players on the team came from two-parent households with one or both parents being college-educated. And I've always had both my mom and dad in my life. My mom was 16 when she had me. My dad was 25. And, you know, neither one of them had a college education, but definitely were hardworking and amazing people. But putting me, getting me put on that team changed the trajectory of my life and gave me a higher level of social capital. 
that I that I that I continue to benefit from even to this day, saying that I played baseball for those three giants. And so got an opportunity to play little league baseball, and then we moved to College Park when I was eleven. Then I played baseball for the old National A. And as I started to get even a little bit older going into high school, you know, I started to play some travel ball and, you know, I, I, I wrote a book, you know, called Living the Lead, A Life of Passion, Purpose and Grit. And in the book, I talk about Antoine Smith very early in the book because he was one of my best friends in College Park. And I didn't find out until I was much older that he was selling drugs and part of the money he was using to cover the cost for him and I to play travel ball. You know, my mom and dad were absolutely amazing. Both of them are still alive and doing well, but they weren't going to invest financially in me to pursue my dream of playing for the, for the Cubs because that was my whole focus. I'm out here playing, trying to get better and do all the things that I can to ultimately do that. So, you know, I was following Antoine's lead. I mean, we were 12 years old and it was kind of like, whatever you decide to do, that's what I'm going to do. I remember one summer at this point, we were probably about 14, 15. And we were playing on some different teams. Wherever he said for me to go, I would just go. And he was paying the weight. And I remember I was playing against a predominantly white team. And there was a kid named Patrick Miller who was on one of the opposing teams. I think we were about, like I said, 15 or so. And next thing I know, Antoine is saying, hey, we're going to go play with them. So now, you know, we're playing on this team. Ultimately, I end up being the one that continued on with the team. I had good coaching, but if I didn't have advocacy that superseded the coaching, and if I didn't have sponsorship that superseded the mentoring, I would have never got drafted. Yep. I can see that and see how all this is leading into what you've done with LEAD. Before we jump into that, let's talk about Diamond Directors because that's how we originally got connected. You know, we had this baseball academy and I'm like, all right, you're the best guy in town on teaching players how to hit. And I'm like, all right, I got to get to know you. And then I saw the way you work with players and you've worked with MLB All-Stars. The list of clients is, you know, a mile long. In baseball, as a hitter, whether somebody's listening to this and they're a player or they're a coach, what is it that makes great hitters great? I guess you got the physical aspect of it, but you also got the mental aspect of it. Talk about the mental aspect of it first. To be a major league all-star, what is the mental side of the game that these hitters and you teach them? Yeah, so the answer to that is, is knowing how to think. And if learning how to hit is not hard, it's pretty easy. But knowing how to think is the part that really is the, is the hardest. And so with Diamond Directors, our, our mission still remains to pro provide the blueprint of success for diamond sport athletes. So even when we use words like blueprint, that is a literal thing. So if you ask me what the blueprint is, I can actually show it to you and I can tell you where we are, where's, what's next and so on and so forth. But even, you know, many, many years ago, we start attaching the word lab to what we do. Rather than a hitting lesson, you know, you, you do a hidden lesson, then that begets another hidden lesson and another hidden lesson. Well, when 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 we started using the terminology lab, and it's something that's very common today, you know, that that forced me to be accountable for the development, making sure we had specific goals and making sure we had a roadmap. I had to make promises and guarantees. 
And if it got to a point where I couldn't deliver, then we would we would end the relationship. So it wasn't we had to get away from just making money and impact. And you can you can do both, but if you make impact, you'll make more money. So again, going back to the question, if you want to be an all star, you you an elite, and not only in baseball but in life, you got to know how to think. And so Peter Alonzo is a is a good case in point. I got connected with Peter when he was seventeen years old. And he was on my team in, in Cary, North Carolina for the Team USA Trials. Uh, and I was the hitting coach for the Pony team. Derek Simmons was the manager. Derek Simmons currently is, the, is an assistant coach at the University of Indiana. And I coached him when he was eight years old, all the way up through high school. So he he now asked me to be the hitting coach on this team. I'm like, absolutely. But it was so cool to now be working for him rather than when he was a kid working with him. So Peter Alonzo's on the team, and Peter does not make the USA team. Peter then was a, a pretty heavy kid, wasn't very strong at third base, and 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 had a lot of upside as a hitter. He was actually putting so much pressure on himself to be a better fielder that I felt like it was really distracting him from being the best hitter that he could be. And so when he came in to train with me for the first time in Atlanta over at D-Bat Buckhead, the spot that you own, it was it was awesome because he walked in and and you know other than just a, a cordial hey how are you doing nobody knew that that was going to be the future. So if you look at a box, and let's say on the right side of the box at three o'clock is failure, which means I did it wrong. At six o'clock is an adjustment, which means I'm going to do something different, and then at nine o'clock. It is success, which means I did it right one time. And then at 12 o'clock is repeat, which means that I did it right six out of 10 times. So what I was trying to get him to understand, first of all, is you got to humble yourself enough to know that what you're doing is wrong. Like no sugarcoating it. If the swing is wrong, the swing is wrong. Now the next best thing to do is to do something different. Don't do the stupid thing when you do something wrong, which is trying to have success. Because that's going to cause frustration. When you do something wrong, make the adjustment, which means do something different than what you just did. It could even be a different kind of wrong. Just don't do that same wrong thing again. So then making adjustments will lead towards you having success. And when we say success, we're talking about you did it right one time. Now, when you did it right one time, the next best thing is to focus on repeating it six out of 10 times. Rather than the stupid thing when you do it right is to try to do it better. So a lot of times that's what ends up happening where it's like all of a sudden that the hitter has really worked to get to a point where, okay, I've done it right. And then they try to do it better. And then that's, that's, that causes frustration. But then as a big leaguer in particular, and if you have this mindset, even at 12 years old, you're definitely going to be a big leaguer is when you have success, you're, you're chunking it out into a group of 10. So now it's not, if you don't get a hit on the next at bat, then you're a failure. I'm going to lump all of this into 10 because at the end of the day, if you can hit the ball hard six out of 10 times, you're going to get a base hit 30 to 40% of the time. So, so that's just kind of the mindset focus that I have on the players because I believe that hitting is simple, but if I can really help them take control of how to think about it, this happens. So what's next? 
then it really allows them to not only perform, but build a capacity that they need for longer periods of time. Because lastly, if you're a big leaguer and you got 500 at bats and you're chunking them out in 10 at bats, that's a lot more manageable than trying to then be focused on every single at bat. I remember watching you do some lessons with, you know, a few different former all-stars and very few times did you just jump in there and start hitting the ball. And I'm like, all right, I just want to sit here and watch them hit because it was a thing of beauty. And you just kept talking and talking and talking. And now it's clicking of the why. It's you got to teach people how to think. Do you think in general that is true with business people? You know, the majority of people that are listening to the CJ are, you know, they're a business owner or they're a leader or they're a head coach. Do you think a lot of people actually work on their thought process of how to do what they're going to do? Or do they just jump in and start taking action before thinking through what is the best way to do whatever it is they're going to do. Yeah, I think that, I mean, you you know, it's a quote that says, if you don't know where you're going, any role will take you there. So, you know, you if you don't know the right route, you'll get going. But the problem is, is if, if you're unlucky and take the wrong route, then it's going to cost you a lot of time and money. And so, you know, that's why for me, I, I created a, a critical change construct. And so this construct for me, even when I wrote my book in 2015, because I really wanted to make sense of how I've gotten to this place of having success. And if, and if I can understand how I've had success, then I can be significant. And so the difference between success and significance is now your ability to serve others. But you can't give what you don't have. So if I don't know how I became successful, and especially as I'm serving black boys in the inner city of Atlanta through Lee Center for Youth, the last thing that they need is a black man that can't explain how he got to where he got. So this critical change construct, everything that I do starts with conviction. It leads to a connection and then it leads to consensus, then collaboration, and then we can have change. So conviction is really dealing with the heart and the why. Why are we doing this? This is where we we do our storming. This is where we can be frustrated and have some really consequential dialogue. And a lot of people don't want to start there. You know, what happened is, is what people will do is they'll start with, here's the change we want. Let's collaborate. And then when the collaboration is getting shaky, you know what? We need to have a consensus around what to do. And so, you know, we'll come in each other's office and talk about it. And then when that's not working a week later, then we need to get connected. And then we got to book a trip for some kind of retreat to some island and spend tens of thousands of dollars so that we can get convicted. So rather than waste all of that time for that to happen and waste all that money on the back end, let's go to the island right now. Like, so it's like, Casey, why do you want me on this show? Why do you want me working with you at DBAT? And then vice versa, you know, Casey, you know, and just really having these really hard conversations because then what's going to happen is, is now we get connected at the head. So the heart before the head. And then now that we're connected, now we can actually have a consensus around what to do. So now this is where promises and guarantees are being made. So working with you and starting from a place of conviction and connection, you make promises to me that you delivered on that is still paying benefits for me even to this day. And then now we can get collaborated. Now we can collaborate. And at the correct collaboration level, now that we've made the promises, 
now you have full access to my network and I have full access to yours. And I'm not going to sleep trying to figure out if Casey is shady or not or not. And, and if for some reason Casey does start showing up shading, then we're going to go back and start over again from a place of conviction. So I, I think that's what happens to a lot of business owners. And quite frankly, the, one of the reasons why I'm 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 a leader when it comes down to baseball on the for-profit business and nonprofit is because of having healthy relationships with business-minded people like you. Like nobody is going to make it in your space if they don't want to work. <laughs> if all they want to do is just throw some baseballs and, and put it on the tee, they're not going to work well with you. Well, because I was able to go be beyond that and show you something, then then you were able to also help me expand my network to be able to do other things. And one of the things I've seen that's so good, CJ, one of the things I've seen from you is I've seen vision. I've seen ideas. I, I've seen thoughts. I've seen you say, this is what we're going to do. But then you oftentimes actually do it. When I work with a lot of people, a lot of visionaries, business owners, they're, they're the idea person. But the things they talk about don't necessarily get done. What is it in your organization that makes you different? The things that you do talk about actually go from idea to a reality. Conviction. I mean, I gotta, I gotta be convicted ab- about it at the heart and level to the point where I will defend it and I will protect it. And 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 that's with anything that I'm gonna be able to do. So there are other things that I could be doing other than being here with you right now. But I feel like this is a part of my calling. And so it, it, it allows me to say no to the things I'm not supposed to be doing. So conviction, you know, with diamond directors, I was so convicted in that I did not have the long lasting professional career that I, that I wanted to have that I felt like I should have had because I did not have coaches with me that were, called and had the capacity to to take me on this journey. And so the word coach before it was used in sports strictly meant a, a means of transportation. So there was a horse, there was a coachman who steered the horse, and then the coach was the compartment that you would sit in. So I was saying, you know, for me, with diamond directors, like, I'm, I am directing. I am in charge. Like, whoever it is, I don't care if Andrew McCutcheon is coming in there with me, Jason Hayward, Dexter Fowler, and all the resources that they have, what I'm saying for everybody is I am leading the way on this to get you to the major leagues or to get you to play at the University of Georgia. And at that point, if the family said, well, we don't want you to be in charge, well, we don't work together because like th- we got to get convicted. Like God is telling me to do this. I actually had one client one time who said that he did not want his son to work with me because he felt like it was too spiritual. So I'm not trying to baptize anybody or get them to to, to become a follower of, of Christ or anything like that. But I, my relationship with God is if this is what you want me doing, you need to provide everything that I need so that I can be in, impactful. I'm almost convicted myself and I'm looking back at my wins in business and some of the things that quite frankly didn't turn out to plan and the things that I did win on that were major successes were the things I was convicted in. I love doing, I felt called to it. And then there's these other businesses. Hey, I want to start this business or invest a little money here, or, Hey, this person has an idea. I want to invest in them, but I don't know if the businesses that I invested in that didn't work, the person I invested in was convicted. So I think that's just so big CJ. If you're going to do something and spend your time on it, be convicted. 
if you're going to invest in somebody else that's doing something, you got to make sure they're convicted because without that conviction, that vision that you have or what's possible probably won't become a reality. So that's just and speaking that's just to really that, cool. like having the person convict you. So when 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 we were doing Diamond Directors starting in '98, so around 2007, you know, at this point, I mean, I've I've developed now using our at bats methodology. Uh, I've developed to date 43 major leaguers. Okay, that have been a part of that methodology, and so we're nine years in, coming up on ten years, and one of my clients, Stan Conway, is Stan is the father of Davis Conway. Stan was and still is a very successful commercial real estate developer, and his son Davis at the time was in middle school. Uh, Stan is a white man. Davis is his white son. And, and the race matters because I remember St- uh, Stan telling me, because at this point, Lee didn't even exist. Speaking about conviction, Stan said, CJ, he said, you're good. But if you were as good as you said you were, your rates wouldn't be so low. So that hit me hard and it hurt because I was competing with my competitors at the time on cost. So one of the reasons why I was able to get a lot of people to come and train with me is because one week, my, my, my lessons then at that time would have been, you know, $20 an hour. And then I might move them up to 50. But if my competitor would have moved his to $15 an hour, I would have moved mine to 10. So what he was really teaching me then that really makes sense now is that you can't be the best and the cheapest at the same time. The second thing that he did that really convicted me was he says, CJ, if you were as good as you said you were and you are good, but if you were that good, it shouldn't be so easy for people to get access to you. He was like, you know, somebody can just call you off the sh- off the street tomorrow and just be in here with you tomorrow. You know, you need to have a process in place where it's not just easy for people to get your time because then you'll end up just spreading yourself thin and saying yes to a lot of the wrong things and no to a lot of the, the things that you should be doing. And then the last thing that he said, as a white man that convicted me, he said, CJ, there's a decline of blacks in baseball and you're not doing anything about it. You know, here I am from Northwest Atlanta, born and raised in a working class family, and I'm spending all of my time in the suburbs making children in the suburbs the best that they can be and not spending any time nor even having a prayer for the kids that, that were black and poor to inner city of Atlanta. And so that's how we got started Lee, during Lee. And so I remember the nights that I couldn't sleep after he told me that. And the only reason why I can sleep now is because, you know, I feel like I'm fulfilling my calling. And even in the Bible, I mean, you, you, when they talk about visionaries, a lot of time, you know, these prophets which is beyond just predicting the future, but also challenging the status quo. A lot of times they would have these visions from God and then they would have sleepless nights. So one of my things is, is you know, hey, I know I'm really convicted. If, if I get something that I feel like I want to do and I can't sleep, then and then lastly, you know, my conversation with God is, is if it's your will, then it's also your, also your bill. So you need to make sure that if I'm saying yes, and this is something I'm convicted and called to do, then you provide and give me the resources and the people to do it. CJ, talk to us about lead, that conviction that you have for lead. 
what you guys are doing today, what you're envisioning for the future. Yeah. So LEAN stands for Launch, Expose, Advise, Direct. And we are a 501c3 sports-based youth development organization located here in Atlanta. And we were established in 2007. And our mission is to empower an at-risk generation to lead and transform their city of Atlanta by using the sport of baseball to help black boys overcome three curveballs that threaten their success, crime, poverty, and racism. And so our our website is Lean Centered for Youth. And so even in breaking down that mission, that's our mission. Our vision is for our lead ambassadors. These are our program participants, the highest level. Our vision is for them to lead their city of Atlanta to lead the world. You know, the word empowering our mission, that means to give responsibility and authority. So I don't have a whole lot of time to break down the full scope of our programming. But when you look at our programming, our black boys who are living in poverty, underperforming in grades, attendance and behavior, they have responsibility and authority within our organization, which which helps them to become lead ambassadors and major league citizens. What really is cool what you've been able to accomplish. I've seen it firsthand. So CJ, keep up the great work. Where would our listeners go to learn more? I know you dropped a website earlier, maybe mention it one more time and anything else you guys got kind of in the works that you want to let our listeners yeah. know about. So our website is leadcenterforyouth.org. And so we're having our next open house at the Lead Center for Youth on Saturday, July 8th from 10 a.m. to 12 p.m. And if you want to come in on a tour of our amazing facility in the West End, and you can reach out to our program director, Bree McClendon. And her email is Bree, B-R-E dot McClendon, M-C-C-L-E-N-D-O-N at Lee Center for Youth. And Casey, I can give you that email as well. But then also, you know, we really want folks to come and join us for our ninth annual Safe at Home game on Saturday, August 8th at Georgia Tech. It's going to be at 11 a.m. And so that is an amazing, unique game we have with our lead ambassadors that play a self-officiated baseball game against the Atlanta Police Department, Fulton County Sheriff's Office, Atlanta Public Schools Police, and Georgia Tech Police. And, And this game was born out of the killing of Mike Brown and Ferguson several years ago. And this year is going to be the first year we actually have one of our lead ambassadors play for law enforcement because now he's a full-time officer with the Atlanta Police Department. Dugout Nation, wow, CJ, what a servant leader. Can't thank him enough for his time today. There are big problems out there in the world, and CJ has used some of his pain and experiences to better the lives of others in entrepreneurship and leadership and mentorship. And he found a problem. He woke up daily to solve it. And I wish we had more people that had that level of conviction in what they do. So be sure to check out more of what they're doing at leadcenterforyouth.org as they lead their sports-based youth development programs that are inspiring and equipping black girls and boys with the empowerment they need to live sustainable lives of significance. So here are my takeaways that I got from CJ. Number one, have conviction above all else. If you don't have conviction, you will fail. Either you will give up when it gets tough or the people that are following you won't be bought in because they don't see your all in. Conviction starts with why. Why are you doing what you're doing? Most people start with why. Then they start to collaborate and work with others to create change. But that's the wrong order. Be convicted first, then start to connect with people and make sure they're convicted as well. 
then you can get on the same page on the same team and then start collaborating. And when I look back at my biggest wins, it's because I was all in and I had conviction. And my biggest losses is I was investing in others that weren't convicted. Number two, teach people how to think. Back at our baseball academies, we would have CJ in a cage with Jason Hayward, with Dexter Fowler, with Pete Alonzo. And I just see them talking and talking and talking. They'd be in there for three or four hours and they might do 30 minutes or 45 minutes of hitting. Learning how to think is the top priority. And when he spent time working with these athletes, they were in the cage thinking about the game. If you don't know where you're going, any road will take you there. So you have to be really clear of where you want to go and what route's going to get you there. Because if you just jump in the cage and start doing something, jump in the boardroom and start doing something without understanding where you're going and the best way to get there, you're going to spend a lot of time, energy, and money in the wrong direction. Number three, if you are great at what you do, charge a premium price. You can't be the best and the cheapest. If you have a track record of success in what you do, if people want it bad enough, they will pay. Only work with people that can pay top dollar because the ones that invest the most in themselves will get the most out of it. If you are not the best in the world at what you do, you need to first believe you can be. And the first step is believing you will be. Get others around you that believe in you, that will help you become the best, and then charge premium fees for a premium service. Thank you for joining us once more for another episode of The Dugout CEO. We want to get you the tips you need to become an MVP of what you do. Sign up for our Friday Focus newsletter and you'll receive a valuable tip each Friday morning to help you build the business and life you want. You can sign up by going to caseycavell.com or click the link in the show notes. And make sure to hit the subscribe button so you get notification on our next episode. And one way you can help us book more great guests like this is to please leave us a rating and honest review in the Apple or Spotify podcasting app.